probably should just be drinking water because this is probably going to make me burp. Is that bubbly water? Yeah. Oh, I have to pee. I'm, I'm all covered in, in tinkle. It's, it's horrible. <laughs> I hate it. I hate getting peed all over. You know, I'd say it's a pretty shitty thing to do, actually, when, when you piss all over me. It's my you least favorite thing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Not Your Father's Movies. I'm Vito. I'm Mike. And I'm Jesse. And we are the Dad Fathers, coming at you with some grandfather-like energy. Grandfather-like. I appreciate that. That's good. (laughs) Well, today on this episode, our second episode in our Not Your Father's Hollywood Movies, movies about movies, movies about Hollywood as a place, movies about L.A., all this stuff all tied into this central question. We are covering 1950s Sunset Boulevard, a classic if there were one. Jesse, this has kind of been a movie that is maybe everyone knows it. Everyone has heard of it. Everyone knows the joke about the guy floating in the pool and everything. But maybe people don't actually know what it's about or have really seen it. Could you tell us about it? Sure. So Sunset Boulevard starts out with Joe And he's a struggling movie writer, right? He's come up with some scripts and they haven't quite hit. He's really struggling financially and people are coming to take his car. And in the midst of that, he pulls his car into an abandoned mansion, which turns out to be owned by Norma Desmond. And Norma Desmond is an older actress who is no longer in movies anymore, but she still is convinced that she is big. It's not her that's not big anymore it's just the pictures that got small in her own words so (laughs) she finds out joe is a writer and so she convinces him to stay with her under the condition that he corrects a script that she wrote and their relationship evolves into her staying there for months and months while she like gives him everything and then when he tries to leave she almost kills herself Uh, slices her wrists open and her butler max is kind of trying to like prevent joe from leaving and he's he's a butler and you also find out that he's also norma's ex-husband and her former movie director right she was in a lot Mm. of his movies right and then a fourth character that's comes into the scene is betty and betty becomes joe's love interest he sneaks off at night to go be with her Uh, This is in the middle of Norma. She thinks she has a deal with Paramount. And uh, so she's like getting all beautified every night. And that's when Joe sneaks off. Eventually she realizes that he's going off to be with Betty. And then uh, she calls Betty and she tells Betty the truth because Joe hasn't told her that she that he is living with Norma. So Norma tells her that. Um, she finds out the truth. She's kind of a little disgusted and Joe's kind of like, Hey, it's, it's kind of all right. I get all this free stuff. Um, she's disgusted. <laughs> she leaves him. Yeah. Because um, I think he actually like then, very, very clearly implies that he's like a gigolo for yep. her. <laughs> like, sure. I have to be with her, but, yeah. uh, but Hey, free I stuff, gold cigarette cases. Right. Like this is cool. <laughs> <laughs> Like, it's one of the most nonchalant, like, reasons to, like, be imprisoned somewhere. It's just like, yeah, got free stuff. What can I say? <laughs> I'm not really happy, but sure. <laughs> so he tries to run after, packs some of his things, and leaves. And before he does, Norma shoots him, kills him. The police come the next day, and she's gone full crazy. 
She walks down the stair a staircase after like being bribed by her servant, who's going full director and has convinced her that all the the reason why all the news cameras are there are they're actually movie cameras. And so the movie ends with her descending a staircase all dramatically and theatrically. And the last line of the movie is Mr. DeMille, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close up. And that's the last line of the movie fully embraced in this Hollywood dementia fantasy. Yeah, it's it's quite a descent into hysteria, delirium. It's kind of amazing that in a movie from 1950, there was an ending that was so bleak. Oh, I, I don't know. It's it's really impressive to me, and and <laughs> I, the, the 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 guts to do that with your character. Who knew they had bleakness in the fifties? I mean, to, but to show it on the silver <laughs> screen like that, man, and that'd be the end of your movie. Yeah, anyway. yeah. Well, the whole movie's also about suicide, and the director, who's the ex husband, like doing things like sending fan mail to her by the hundreds to convince her that she still has fans out there. Like it, it's very sad and very very much about mental illness. Uh, That's not a subject I see covered very thoroughly in 1950s movies. Yeah, it's usually just, yeah, that guy's crazy. (laughs) And the guy, like, bites somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe to get into sort of the people behind this, this is is one of the legendary Hollywood classics, all-timers, directed by Billy Wilder, who, uh, just some interesting factoids about him. He's the first person to win Academy Awards as a producer, a director, and a screenwriter. He directed 14 different actors in Oscar-nominated performances. He himself is nominated for 21 Oscars, 13 for writing, and 8 for directing. He won 2 for directing for The Last Weekend and The Apartment, 3 for screenwriting, The Last Weekend, Sunset Boulevard, and The Apartment. And he also won Best Picture for The Apartment as well. This was written by uh, Billy Wilder himself and Charles Brackett. And a third writer that I have memorized, whose name is D.M. Marshman Jr., who... Thanks, Secretary. <laughs> um, nice. This is one of uh, many collaborations between Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett, who are very much early Hollywood legends at the time. This is starring William Holden, who himself has made quite a career uh, out of playing mostly military guys, mm-hmm. ton of military guys. Oh, yeah. But he collaborated with Billy Wilder four times for this movie, Sabrina, oh. Fedora, and Stalag 17. He's also worked with Blake Edwards for SOB. Sidney Lumet in Network, and Sam Peckinpah with The Wild Bunch, and then finally David Lean on The Bridge on the River Kwai. And that's just a few of his credits. He's, he was really a, a big deal. So he's kind of representing the new Hollywood, the guys that are going to have long careers after this. This is a nice stepping stone. Um, in fact, just to even highlight that more, they had to make him look older <laughs> for oh, this wow. movie because he and Gloria Swanson looked too, too alike in age. Mm-hmm. So instead of aging her up, they let her stay pretty much the same and just aged him up. It's kind of a, a rare thing. Wow. But Gloria Swanson, very famous silent film actress, uh, one of the most bankable stars in Hollywood at the time of her ascent. She just she worked all the time, constantly. Uh, it was very profitable. Her star began to wane in around the 30s, around the introduction of audio. Of talkies. Talkies. Yeah. And it kind of actually began to wane right around the time when she worked with Eric von Stroheim who was a notoriously difficult director to work with. One of the things he hated was budgets. Uh, He refused to work (laughs) on a picture with a budget. (laughs) But the movie that they worked on together in real life is shown in this movie. It's called uh, Queen Kelly. It's in this scene when uh, they're sitting and they're just, they're smoking and watching the silent movie. What's up, Jesse? And just to be clear, Eric von Stroheim is Max von Merling in this movie. 
Yeah, right. right. Yeah, yeah. He's the butler. Yeah, he's the butler, which is funny because they had such a contentious relationship in real life. Yeah. <laughs> and here he has to be like her biggest fan. Yeah. Um, he was a very famous and revolutionary silent film director, known principally for his movie Greed, uh, which has as, about a many, as many cuts as Blade Runner does, all of extremely varying length. Well, I, I think that the original cut is 10 hours long. Yeah, that's a good sit. 10, ten hours long. Oof. Silent film, 10 hours long. Wild. I don't think I've ever been silent for 10 hours in my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 10 minutes uh, i would be I sleeping know, guys. i'd be sleeping yeah for sure and then wake up to greed and then go back to sleep and wake up to greed but he's he's been really well known and taught in film schools so eric von stroheim definitely one of the the biggest deals and then rounding out our cast we have nancy olsen and she was supposed to be big from sunset boulevard but there's actually a lot of articles uh, on the internet you can find including an interview that she gives with the hollywood reporter in april of this year or April of 2020, talking about why she kind of walked away from stardom. She really is only in Pollyanna after this and Airport 1975. Everything else, it's a pretty small credit list, even though she's still alive and was in something called Dumbbells in 2014, whatever that is. Hmm, interesting. Uh, and then final note on our cast list here is the cameos here. There's a section in the film. Jesse, did you mentioned the Waxworks I did not, but there is a scene in the movie where Norma Desmond invites her waxworks club to come over to play bridge. And that's just what the narrator calls all the old actors, actresses, and directors, I think, that are all coming over. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and so those cameos are done by uh, Hedda Hopper, Buster Keaton, Anna Q. Nilsson, and H.B. Warner. Um, I think everyone listening to this probably knows about Buster Keaton. Uh, and actually, you also know about H.B. Warner, too, because he is uh, he's Mr. Gower. Mr. Gower. <laughs> I don't know what you put in those pills, but you put something bad in those pills, Mr. Gower. Put something bad in those pills. Uh, and he's also in uh, Mr. Deed. Mr. Smith goes to Washington and Mr. Deeds goes to town. Uh, also with Jimmy Stewart. So kind of fun. And then the final cameo here actually is I, I don't even know if you could call it a cameo. It's a minor role um, is the legendary film director Ce- Cecil B. DeMille playing himself for a pretty long stretch of this movie, like yeah. 10, 15 minutes. He's a really big part of this movie. Yeah. 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 But I don't, I think that anyone who knows anything about classic films knows the director of the 10 commandments. I don't yep. think I need to run down his list, <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's pretty much all I got sort yeah. of about this movie as it stands in Hollywood. Now, as we look back on it and also kind of how it stood at the time, um, this sort of clash between the, the rise of the new talent making very exciting things. I mean, 1950 onwards is when we're really starting to see Hollywood get shaken up um, and changed in ways that we're still seeing today. I think it's interesting seeing where it kind of came from as well. So Vito, do you have a strong connection with this movie, like growing up? This was always a movie that I've read the script years ago in high school. It was a part of a screenwriting class that I took. It's a pretty well-known, pretty well-loved, really well-written piece of work. I mean, anything that Billy Wilder put his hands on is kind of sacrosanct. <laughs> he's one of the great writers. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a very masterful person in terms of tone. You know, he never has one true tone to any of his movies. Like the best you could say is that they're dramas or kind of comedies. They're all kind of funny and they're all pretty dramatic. <laughs> uh, he said himself <laughs> that he he hated genre filmmaking. So yeah, that's my connection to it. I did not see it though in its entirety besides clips from it and from that class till just a couple of years ago and then revisiting it for this for this podcast. So not a super strong connection, but it's something I've always been aware of. How about you, Mike? 
you know, I've always heard of it. I've always been aware of it, but I'd never seen it until uh, just just this week, actually. Wow. Um, yeah, no, totally. I I had no idea what it was about um, other than it was about kind of like old Hollywood, silent film, actor, that sort of thing. Way creepier than I expected. I was like, oh, this is going to be kind of a fun sort of like throwback to Hollywood land mm-hmm. times, you know? Mm-hmm. No, this is this is a creepy movie, man. This is like close to an Alfred Hitchcock in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, 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 for sure. What do you think about that, Jesse? Yeah, I, I think I have this mostly the same story as you. I did watch this a little bit growing up. You know, we had TCM on and this was one of the staples or I can't even remember if it was staple, but I remember some of these scenes so vividly, like her descending the staircase as a little kid. That makes a stark impression on your mind when you see it. And you're just like, oh, this lady is crazy. (laughs) Um, And then I don't think I've really seen this movie in its entirety until a few days ago. And it's it's. Yeah, it's so much darker. Like, I didn't realize it was that same movie that I'd seen when I was a little kid of that woman descending the staircase and everything. And then when I got there, it's just like, oh, wow, I can't believe that was made in 1950. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it seems very yeah. ahead of its time. Uh, something I, I think I actually I might like to do before we get too far ahead into discussing the movie is actually just say right off uh, – whether we liked it, because we haven't said yeah. that yet. Oh, I guess, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you like it, Jesse? Is this? Do you, do you love it? Do you like it? Are you kind of meh? I like it. If it was just Joe, and if it was just Norma, like if it was just their dynamic, I think it would be a good movie. But once you add Max in there, and you realize the way they've weaved him through this story, and kind of made him a central character without you ever realizing it, because he's the background butler, I think it makes it a great movie. What yeah. about you, Mike? Oh yeah, I really liked it. Yeah. I, I thought that this was an. I and everyone else thinks that think that this is an incredible movie, a, a masterpiece, like an actual masterpiece uh, of film. What about you? Yeah, I, I love it. I love it to pieces. I think it it is really entertaining and really funny, but also not. It's it's not laugh out loud funny. It, there's oh, just yeah. moments where. Like when he finally comes up to the house, right? And she says, where are you? You've kept me waiting for so long. And he, the, he goes in, the butler's like, go upstairs. And he says, yeah. uh, you, you got me all wrong. He says, just go upstairs. And if you need help with the coffin, call me. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> and, and that was the moment where I went like, huh. Uh, but I was kind of, I was too into the movie at that moment to, you know, I, I remembered how, how it unfolded and what happened, but it's such a bizarre scene. And then to walk up, and she's talking about all the different colors for the casket. And then you see it's a dead monkey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, at first, all you see is just a really hairy arm. Yes. Like, fall out of a blanket. And you're like, what is that? What is that? What is it? And it turns out to be a monkey. Like, has this woman in a mansion been living with a monkey? Like, they never even mentioned the monkey after the fact. It's, it was just like a bygone era of the monkey era that has just passed away, I guess. I don't know. That's so weird. The, the monkey is the predecessor to uh, to to Joe Gillis. Gillis. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. the reason the script sucked. Is the monkey was writing it? Yeah, the monkey was. <laughs> uh, I, I guess famously, Billy Wilder went. So he he had only written the first part of this. So they actually filmed this totally sequentially. Mm-hmm. I guess famously, the cast was like, "So how are we going to film like the monkey burial scene 
And he said, oh, you know, the way monkey burial scenes get filmed. (laughs) (laughs) Great. (laughs) Thanks, Billy. (laughs) Really great direction. And then you see it and you go, you know what? If I were ever to see a monkey being buried and it didn't look like that, I would think it was really out of place. As long as it looked like that, I'd I'd be okay with it. I'd be like, oh, it's a monkey being buried. I I guess that's true. You wait until the middle of the night and you make sure that your house guest who's very creeped out by you and and the house is there watching through the window. Yeah. And and you really got to dress up in regalia. You know, this requires costuming. Yeah. This this monkey burial. Oh, yeah. It's poor chimp. Well, I I guess I don't know if it was a chimp. It's just a monkey. Just a monkey. Just a regular monkey. We don't know what kind. That's sad. They should have said so. Anyway, <laughs> we're getting really off track here. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so, so we all we all liked it. I, I I at least for sure love it. I think Mike loves it. Jesse, you yeah. seem a little bit on the fence between really like and love. If we're using like really specific descriptions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I really like it too. I also it's something that really needs to digest more for me. Like the more I was thinking about it, the more I was liking it. Uh, for example, like I was thinking at. At one point during the movie, Norma Desmond is just such a strange character. Like, I've dealt with people that are mentally ill, and this is not how they act, really. Um, So her portrayal didn't quite seem realistic. But then if you put it in perspective to this actress who used to be part of silent movies, who used to be a star, just using her face and these crazy facial expressions that you're seeing that are super over the top and super dramatic... I was thinking, like, the more I thought about stuff like that, the more I started to appreciate maybe the subtleties that were there that I didn't quite pick up while I was watching it. At the end of the day, I think I love it because I keep on finding things in the movie like that when I go over it in my head. Yeah. It's it's really fun the way, speaking of that, to kind of get into sort of getting into to Norma, you know, who is this force of nature in this movie. The way that, that Billy Wilder talks about shooting her is he, he almost talks about shooting her like Dracula. You know, like this this creature of the night uh, that was hiding in in the recesses of her cave, you know, or like in Dracula's castle. And she has sort of like her familiar, you know, Max, yeah. who runs all her errands for her and is, has undying love and affection. And William Holden's character, uh, what's his name? Gillis. Joe, Joe Gillis. Yeah, he is sort of like this new this new person that she's trying to seduce into her web. And it's really funny. Just something I noticed uh, when thinking about this is is the way that they are set up in the story as as almost completely diametrically opposed right he is he has lost kind of hope he's a very cynical sarcastic asshole and yeah. he he it's always talking about how he's always writing always writing and it's never any good but you get the impression that he hasn't really been writing writing like his agent tells him oh you don't get a car maybe that means you'll actually write something <laughs> but then with her like her though she is prevented from doing the thing that she really wants to do she's she's prevented from being an actress she she's wanted to do that her whole life and she's actually very hopeful like she's she's a very hopeful character at her yeah. heart she's not lost out on the dream of hollywood on tinseltown and so it's yeah. funny seeing that that sarcasm and cynicism shot right through with this blind demented hope anyway sorry what what did you guys think of that i've been talking for a while yeah no that i mean like that that's a really interesting and cool dichotomy and you wouldn't necessarily expect it that way because you'd expect the young man to be the young writer in Hollywood to be the hopeful character and the the old washed up movie actress to be the the one who's gotten cynical but I think I think that's really true and, and I do think that there is like that diametric opposition there there's like almost a mutually parasitic relationship between them too yeah at the same time right yes 
he enables her, right? Yeah. He, and by enabling this this descent, it's, it's what Max has been doing the whole time. Yeah, yeah. But he's changing the dynamic because there's actually something that he can do, that she can make him do for her. Yeah. You know, so now that she's been given sort of agency, you know, I've, I've been needing a writer, you know, he's like, well, this is bad. <laughs> we <Yeah>. should fix <laughs> it. The very fact that he enters into that quest and go to Jesse's point about Max changing this thing. If it was just the two of them, I don't know what this movie would be. Yeah. Because you need that presence of someone that that's been there the whole time has known her, known her history. And then seeing this new disruption, you know, he is kind of trying to get rid of him, but he's also wanting him to stay. Like there's both. Like he, yeah. he hates this interruption. He hates the, the possible danger to his mistress, but he knows that this is, this might be the thing to keep her going to like make her live again, which he really truly seems to believe that she was slash is the greatest. And he yeah. wants to see that return. What do you think, Jesse? You, you're, you're stroking okay. your beard. I've got, <laughs> I've got a couple different interpretations on two points that you made. One is about, about Norma being hopeful. And I don't, I don't think I see that. I don't see her as hopeful, really. I just see her as having a false sense of reality. Like she says near the end, right? Doesn't she say like, I'm a star. I've always been a star. Um, You can't leave a star. And that's why she goes out and kills him. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like it's, it's not that she's hopeful. She she thinks she has it. The way I see hope is something that you're attaining, that you're trying to attain something that you currently don't have. And she's not hopeful. She's just prideful because she thinks she is a star. Not that she's going to be one. The, the hope there is the, the, the hope I was pointing to is the return because she knows that she's a star for sure. But she hasn't had property. They haven't. They haven't given her that. So she does what what most creatives do uh, when there's not a space for them. Is they make that space. I mean, what are we doing right here? Yeah, we made a space for us to be creative. And we're in that space together. And so her not finding an opportunity creates that for herself, but can't find someone to do it with her. That's that hope that I'm talking about is that she, she has a certainty that she's a okay. star and she okay. hopes to rise to the big screen again. It's all she like at the end when she walks down the staircase and she like stops the take, right? Quote unquote. And she has that message to the fans and says how happy she is that she's finally back. And that's when she says, Mr. DeBell. That's true. Ready okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely like a delusional take. Like you're, you're definitely right about that. Like she's not sane, but yeah. What were you saying? I don't remember. Uh, (laughs) There was a a second thing you wanted to say. You said you you had two. Oh yeah. Yeah. Max's hope. He doesn't strike me as the hopeful type because I think he, unlike Norma, he sees reality. And I think, well, he basically always knows that she's not going to make it big. He's just trying whatever he can to keep her alive. Like he's living the nitty gritty reality, which is that any day she could kill herself. Sure. And maybe he's hopeful that she'll just stay alive the next day. But that's the hope that's driving him. I don't I don't think he has any delusions of grandeur for her. Maybe not delusions in the future. Uh, he as, as you said earlier, Jesse, too, he is he is as deluded as she is, though. In I mean, you'd have to be to stay in this place, right? He does have a sense of what will happen to her, but I don't know if that's really a, a good sense of reality. Like he seems to have this disconnect inside of him. And it's the same disconnect with how he treats Gillis, right? He wants Gillis to leave, but also wants him to stay. Like he's not very friendly to him. And but also like he's always back and forth. With I don't everybody. think he wants him to leave. You I think, think so? he does want him to stay from the get-go. From the moment he walks in, he says, No, you can't go. Like you have to go upstairs and help with the dead. You know, you have to go and help with the dead that is in this house. Yeah. And keep 
dead, this half-life going. I thought that this is... shrine, the candle lit in this mm. shrine to to greatness. That's and, and interesting. I, I think I think you're both right. He doesn't have hope. Like he's he's constantly trying to like he's writing those those fan letters himself. He knows that people don't really care about her anymore. But he sees I, I think it's more of sort of like like the familiar thing in a way, but it's also like a, a you know, the lone monk worshiping at the shrine, trying to trying to keep the fire alive. Um, like yeah. no matter what, she's worth, you know, giving his life to. And she, I think she's kind of manipulated him into that, into worshiping her stardom. Yeah, I think he definitely has that. I think that's a huge motivator. And I also think another huge motivator for him, it's a huge motivator for him to like worship her. Yes. But also it seems like he takes responsibility for her stardom and therefore her fall because he directed her. It seems like since he cultivated her stardom, he's cultivating her after the fall. Oh yeah. Hmm. Doesn't he say something like that at at, like when, when he catches uh, Gilly's, he talks to Gillies when he comes back from. Um, I was going to bring that scene up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But keep going because I want to well, see what you think of it. Well, I'm just I, I'm trying to remember. I don't recollect it fully, but it doesn't he say something like that? Like if she disappears completely, or if she forgets, or yeah, something like like then all of my work didn't matter. Yes, yeah, because he's looking back because he more he talks about when he leaves being a director, and he says, you know, some people would find this shameful, but. It's about that he was the one that cultivated her, brought her to greatness. And if she doesn't stay great, then what was all this for anyway? I think is, is the, was what he was kind of saying. Kind of the vibe. Which is, which is kind of what I was trying to, to say. And I think probably I said it a little bit too clumsily. And thank you guys for bringing out the point a little bit further is that that's that kind of delusion I'm pointing to. What, what, what's up? Did you find it, Jesse? He does say it, it was I who asked to come back as humiliating as it may seem i could have continued my career only i found everything unendurable after she'd left me i'm sorry was that the quote you were thinking of yes that, that was the yeah, moment that's anyway. the moment for sure i think that's the beginning of the of the conversation but I, I could be wrong i could be adding something in there what's kind of hard when trying to pick out individual things from this movie is that the characters it's it's so well written that there's a constant back and forth yeah there are some some good short monologues in here but there's nothing where one character just sits and like lays it all out it's always teased out and brought out into fruition from reactions from the other characters so it's like it's hard to find a block where it's like oh yes he stated his motivation here it's like no this is the five minutes in which his motivations are clear (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah yeah but it seems clear though that like he's been starstruck he he's become obsessed with her yeah. Um, and he became obsessed with her kind of through the process of directing her, raising her as an actress and directing her, getting married to her. And then even even after they divorce, he comes back and is her servant throughout two more marriages. Mm-hmm. You get the sense. And then this this weird thing with Joe um, that's a little less than a marriage and a little more than a, than a friendship. Yeah. Yeah. As a character, I, I think that he, as we said before, I think he's necessary to be there. You need someone else to sort of offset, to both to offset some of the tension and also increase the bizarreness of this yeah. place. Like how when he's reading the script, when he sits down to read it for the first time and the butler comes in, he, it's clear. It's almost like he's rehearsed this himself, but he comes in and it's the it's daytime and he draws the shades and then brings a lamp over <laughs> and yeah. sets it down. So weird. <laughs> and then he... Uh, and then he brings over the caviar and he brings over the champagne 
And then just the way that they all just kind of sit there yeah. <laughs> and they just wait for him to finish reading. <laughs> well, it's clear like now you're in, you're trapped, you're stuck. Yeah. You're you're within the fortress. Yeah, you're 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 done for. You you've entered the spider's web. Who knows if you're going to get out again. Yeah. So Max really does increase the weirdness is and there's the organ playing and the drawing of the of the painting so they can watch the movie. Everything the that dude does organ. is creepy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, who sits down on like a sunny morning and is like Takata in fugue? We're gonna play it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, awesome. it's so bizarre and so strange. But then like as you find out that this dude yes, he's a little crazy. He's quite a bit crazy. He's crazy for, for Norma, but there's something more human to him because at first you just think he's the crazy, psychotic Frankenstein servant. I can't remember what that dude's name is. Igor. Igor, right? You think Igor, Igor, would, what help? <laughs> um, <laughs> you think he's one of these crazy guys, and instead he has this very human connection with Norma, which is he just loves her and wants to make sure she has everything that she wants in life which is a little extreme but it's at least somewhat relatable and then if you look back on all of his actions and realize that maybe he doesn't really want joe there but he just recognizes that he has to be there in order for norma to be happy it gives this new emotion to this mansion instead of just a crazy bizarre place it's a crazy bizarre place with a lot of human feeling going on that is way under the surface and as kind of like an interloper to that, um, we have Nancy Olson's character, right? Yeah. The uh, what, what's her name? Betty. Yeah, Betty Schaefer. Betty Schaefer. All right, so I was going to start talking about that wonderful interloper, Betty Schaefer. However, due to a lot of audio issues that we've had with Zencaster, Spectrum, uh, my computer, uh, Jesse's computer, uh, I don't know. The moon, we have been struggling. The wind. The wind. The wind wind blew the internet waves badly. I don't know. It's been an almost an hour of us fighting (laughs) fucking technology. Yeah. So I was hearing them talk and then responding to them. And then I would see the recording was picking up my response to them before they had even talked. There was a whole, there was time travel involved in here. And it was time travel and quantum physics were messing up our recording. Everything, everything messed up everything. Uh, the, the rage, I feel we, we were just three dads. We wanted to talk about this wonderful movie. This movie rules. It rules so hard. And we had so much good stuff to say about it. No, no, hold and on, hold we on. We do. Every we do have good things to say about it. Do you think we still do, Jesse? I think we still do. I think, I think we still need to talk about Betty Schaefer. All right, I think we do too. But what I do want to say is, and we're going to keep this in the podcast. You need to lean back for your mic just a touch. Um, we're, we're we're done. We're done being excited. We got to bring it back. We got to bring it back just a little bit because we, there's still this this classic of celluloid that needs to be discussed. Betty Schaefer is an interloper into the world of Norma and Max because she represents the threat to Norma of the other woman, right? She is almost like a mistress to, to Joe because she doesn't know what Joe's life was like. Joe is not the most communicative guy. She mm-hmm. wants to be a part of it. She wants him and she wants everything that he can promise her that return to glory that she, she feels like she's missing or has been denied actually rather. And Betty is this other woman for her, the specter 
just like she is a specter in her own home. And for Joe, she seems to be the other alternative. It's his, it's his former life, what he could be. He could be that writer. She entreats him over and over again, come write with me, come make this new project based on your old project. Like, let me make my bones as a screenwriter and let's bring you back into the fold as well because you've had, just had a, a string of no hitters. Let's, let's get you an, a home run. And he's resistant. He's actually resistant to both of them. He's so indecisive. You know, he, he likes the cushy gig being over with Norma. He feels some kind of attachment to her. And yet he feels the same attachment to, to Betty. It's, a, it's an attachment of love, an attachment of professional possibilities. And he, he will not act. He doesn't know which way to go until the final 20 minutes of the movie. Um, what do you guys think about that, that sort of that back and forth thing that he does with Betty's character? Like, what does she represent to you guys? Yeah, man, I think that that's, that's a fantastic take on it. I mean, she's definitely the other woman to Norma. And also, it's kind of interesting because in both situations, the, the girls, the love interests, because Norma is also a love interest here. For sure. They're both, they both see him as the vehicle to their success. Yes. Um, and and it, they're both trying to, I, I don't know if use is the right word for, for what Betty's doing, but to work with him and, and I don't think use use is, is correct for either, but it's close to that. There is well, some know, using I think, happening. I, I think it's very true for Norma. I think she's very much using, Joe. but that's not the only thing that's happening. Yeah. He, well, he's using her too. Yes. If it, that's, but there's usury on both ends from everybody, but it's not like that's the, the sole purpose yeah. of the relationship. Right. M maybe what I'm yeah. trying to say is that, the way that Betty wants to use Joe is a lot more normal than the way that Norma wants to use Joe. What do you What do you think, Jesse? Uh, more normal than Norma. I love that. That should be a phrase. <laughs> that should um, be a movie. That should be the sequel. More normal That's than the Norma. Sequel. <laughs> uh, Dude, Betty's such a weird character, man. She doesn't really seem to know what she wants. She wants to be with Joe, but she's also engaged, right? That's another factor. Joe is just yeah. as much a mistress to, or I don't know. Wait, what's what's the male mistress? Is that a, a mister? A mister? Yeah, it's, it's a mister. It's a mister. <laughs> He's yeah. the mister. <laughs> yeah, he, he mists. He mists all the females. He mists all of all the hers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so he so joe is betty's mister uh because you know she's engaged and her fiance is away right there's that aspect too like she they do have like a sort of forbidden love going both ways because it's bad for joe because yeah. it messes up his relationship with norma even though that probably should be messed up i don't know and then you have her relationship and it seems like she has a good relationship with Joe's best friend. And that's kind of why they're together in the first place. Cause they met at this party. I don't know, man, the, the way she like is supposedly engaged to the guy. And then they have a new year's Eve party. And then he almost kisses her and she doesn't even bat an eye. She just wants it. Even though she's only met Joe once before it's like, Betty, calm down. It's, it, yeah, yeah, she's she's pretty thirsty. She's yeah. pretty thirsty. <laughs> she likes the Joe. <laughs> she likes the Joe a whole lot. Like she takes her coffee, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> not that funny, guys. Not that funny. 
Oh, no, Mike that... is not that funny. Oh man, you know, no, no um, you know what? I'm putting you in comedy jail. <laughs> uh, no, I was... will. I, I refuse to go. Oh, that was my cup of tea, or Unless rather, my cup of Joe with his swimming pool. Your cup oh, of Joe. Oh, there we go. Ew. All right, so uh, so it's true. No. She does seem to have like less in like less inhibitions, right? What do you think about that? Yeah, so I was thinking about that. So one one reason I can think is because her job is a script reader. She just reads everything that comes her way in print in the studio. And then she gives her opinions on it, whether or not it's good. So she has seen everything Joe has written. So even though she kind of rushes into their relationship, I think it's based off of like her just reading all of his works and materials and getting to know him through that, like through movies rather than through the person at first. So I think that helps jumpstart and helps explain her character a little more. She is the opposite of Norma in a lot of ways. Like Norma is more on the surface, more about the looks and the glamour of Hollywood. Whereas Betty is all about what's behind the camera. And similarly, like what's behind underneath the skin, what's behind the person. And I think she's kind of figured out what makes Joe tick to some degree, which is why she wants to write with them. Interpreting kind of what you're saying and putting it into my words, I, almost like she kind of knows Joe. Joe is kind of taken aback by that. He's charmed by it, but he's a little he's a little challenged by it, especially mm-hmm. because of her relationship with his friend. Yeah. And meanwhile, you know, you know, she's saying like I want you, I like you, and he's kind of going, "Oh, but the friend." And also, Joe kind of strikes me as someone that maybe doesn't really want to be known very much. That's maybe some of that attachment that he has with Norma is that he he gets to be kind of himself a little bit and a little bit removed and Norma hates it, but that's kind of the dynamic of their relationship. Like, I'm just thinking out loud here, like like she hates the fact that he's so removed, but he kind of likes that antagonism. Well, yeah. And also leaning into that a little more too, in a way their relationship, his relationship with Norma is founded on her using him to be the best version of herself, at least Mm -hmm. her in her opinion. Whereas with Betty, she wants to be involved with him to help him be the best version of himself. Mm, yeah. Um, like she's pushing him. She's challenging him. Like, like you said, she is a challenger there. Mm-hmm. And she's saying like, you're writing these crap scripts and I know that they're crap and you know that they're crap and you're doing them because you want them to get bought quickly, but you have so much more and they're writing whatever they're writing. Um, it's actually like a different take on his own script. Yeah. 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 And she's helping him get so much more out of it. And he's actually loving it. And he's really, really liking her too. um, Partly because of that, Mm -hmm. I think, or mostly because of that. Yeah. He seems to be more comfortable with her because I mean, like, like any guy will tell you and also us being guys, Hey, when women want guys to talk about themselves, yeah, you know, we'll go for days. (laughs) We won't know when you want us to stop. (laughs) We will make whole podcasts about it. I know. I'm still going with my wife. Like I'm yeah. still wondering like when I'm going to be asked to stop. Yeah. <laughs> I probably it's like surprising. <laughs> it's surprising. It's like, why do you want me to talk about me? Exactly. But sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm used to fighting for it amongst guys like you. <laughs> um, so sort of getting, getting back on track real quick. I think that leads us to what I think this movie is a really interesting story, kind of a flashy kind of move because he places Billy Wilder places this, acting showcase right at the middle of it as of Norma Desmond. It's an incredibly unflattering portrayal, but it's also very meaty. There's a lot to dig in here and a lot to do for an actress. But I think that quietly what's happening with Joe is just as interesting here 
he's a very complicated person. And I want to move over to talking about him a little bit and ask this question. Is Joe, our protagonist, also the villain of the movie? Is he also the villain of mm. the movie? Mm-mm. Yeah, I'm just going to go with flat out no. He's not the villain, right? He He's a prisoner. Like, he's genuinely trapped by Norman. And yeah, he he's kind of conflicted about it and kind of likes it. But at the end of the day, like, he actually does leave her because he's fed up. And then he comes back because she tries to kill herself. So he's trapped emotionally. He's trapped almost physically because he has no money. He has no car. You can't get around Hollywood if you don't have a car. He has nowhere to go. So he's not, he's not really, I don't even really think he's a protagonist because he doesn't have, he doesn't really seem to be making a lot of choices. He makes two in in the movie, which is one to stay there and then two to leave. And that's kind of it. That's so. Oh, I thought, I thought you were going to say his second choice was falling in the pool, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. To go out for a swim. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just just a, just a couple of uh, a couple of uh, bullet holes in you, make him make you sink faster, which they didn't. So, so I want I want to kick it to Mike because I want to answer exactly what you said as well. Because uh, I have I have some further thoughts on this, but Mike okay. seemed like he might be a little bit more on my side. <laughs> I'm I'm willing to explore the possibility. I don't know. I like what what do you think of a villain as? So in this context, what I'm thinking of in terms of villainy is his presence in the movie is driving everyone around him to act, Mm -hmm. but he's so incredibly selfish and he doesn't seem to do anything for anyone else purely for them. Everything he does is motivated by his desire for something. And not even like desire as in describing a protagonist, like I want to do that. I want to get that. But everything is very selfish. Everything he does, he only wrecks things that he touches um, by the fact Mm. that he's touching them. With the exception and of him so, staying so, for Norma to not kill herself. I, I think that yes, there is but, selfishness but wrapped, wrapped up in there, but I don't think selfishness is a primary motivator. It's to make sure she doesn't die. But the thing is, is that she recovers really easily and she's already patched up by the doctor before he gets there. Yeah. It doesn't even matter that he comes back. She doesn't, she's doing it as a, as a final gambit to get him back. But if that and doesn't work... I mean, she's good. She was going to be okay. Yeah. She was already patched. And so he does come back out of a feeling of responsibility that he caused this, but it's such, it's so begrudging, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, well, I fucked that up. May as well go back. But then when he's there, he doesn't answer any of her appeals for emotional honesty. She doesn't answer any of his appeals for any of her appeals for any kind of real connection. I, I want to just say that scene where he comes back is one of the it's it's a masterpiece of just creepiness mm-hmm. because you get the impression that that's when he becomes her her husband stand in mm-hmm. is is when he comes back after she slit slit her wrists open sure he climbs on top of her very suggestively right? yeah well, like, I actually actually kind of cuts away and I actually yeah. remember um a, a review I think it was Roger Ebert who said it that the way you mentioned again Dracula the way that it cuts away is yeah. almost the same way that uh, it would cut when Dracula would take another for his own. Oh, oh, cool. Yeah, so, yeah that's a good So point. leading into that, I am yeah. not saying that she is not a monster. She's a monster, yeah. okay? What I am saying, though, is continuing on in my uh, my penchant for really powerful, showy performances from women. Oh, yeah, uh, <laughs> Glenn Close I, I, syndrome, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or, you know, in, in a future episode, uh, Meryl Streep, <laughs> Devil Wars Prada syndrome. Um, but you know what? 
That's all <laughs> that we're going to say about that uh, for now. <laughs> With this, though, she she is this monster that is manipulating him as much as she can, but she's manipulating any sort of decency that he has in him until at the end he's kind of bled dry. But there's very little decency to be had in the first place. Yeah, And so I'm not saying he's... He's the villain in the classical sense, like he's the monster. She's clearly the monster in this Dracula, but everything he does is simply because of that wicked kind of self-interest. And none of this would happen. None of this terrible stuff would happen to these people if he wasn't such a selfish bastard. Yeah, because he gets into the whole situation by basically trying to grift her. Like, like, he's like, and, and, oh. hiding, and hiding from his creditors. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and hiding from his creditors. Like, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm... I'm okay. Yeah, I'm okay with the idea of him being also partially the villain, you know, definitely not classically, but his decisions are definitely like he he decides he recognizes like this woman is going to use uses people to kind of self perpetuate her own delusions. Um, And I'm going to use her and her delusions instead of, you know, walking away from it and, and helping her sort of achieve I don't know if even helping her achieve some sort of sense of sanity is what he needs to do, but just like walking away from it is the more heroic thing to do. I think, I don't know. Maybe that's a, that's a hot take. Oh, what do you think, Jesse? I think you're right that he, he should have just walked away. Similarly, like Max should have walked away because Max is just as much of a villain then as everybody else in this story. It seems like all three of them, maybe with the exception of Betty, but Betty also was like cheating on her fiance and so ready to do that with him. I I don't know. Like everybody seems kind of creepy in here and like their motivations are out of whack. But if I have to think of like a real villain in this movie, though, I, I don't think it's Joe. I don't even think it's Norma. I think the real villain in this movie is Hollywood. Because at the end of the day, Mm. I think Hollywood is the one that's like, you know, like the fact that Joe has to run from his creditors to like not give up his car. That's a big deal, right? You can't make a living in Hollywood and not have a car. And Norma, like you have Max being trapped, Max and Norma being trapped because of like what Hollywood has left them with, which is nothing, just a shell. They brought up the star that made her crash and now she's gone and then you have Max who's clung on to her all these years. And the only person who maybe is not like this is Betty, but even Betty seems kind of, I don't know, like she takes up more of the culture of new Hollywood. Maybe I'm not quite sure about Betty. Her nose, dude, her nose. I think, I think that that's why her nose is so important because she's remember that scene. It's kind of weird. It's like, Oh, this is, why are you telling me about the work she got done on her nose? And also I didn't realize that, they did that good work back then, but I mean, she's uh, an actress, Mike. Yeah, <laughs> not anymore. No, I mean, like she's literally an actress in real life. Oh, she yeah. probably didn't have those work done, <laughs> <laughs> or she might have. You don't know. <laughs> but but I think that's why it's important because you have the sense that like, oh, she is kind of like the fair, the fair maiden or whatever. Like she's she's purity, she's goodness, but in fact, she's also just as fake, but younger than than Norma. Yeah, um, I, I I don't know. That's kind of that's kind of where I I, I do. I, I, I want to bring in real quick. I think it attaches to both your points. So the reason Jesse, why all of the characters are kind of creepy, as you put it, um, or just kind of like low lifes in in the way in their moral certitude, is because this is a film noir. Everyone sucks in a film noir, right? Yeah. It's because it's supposed to be grayscale, right? But even further than that, the way that these these people fit in, I mean, both like Norma 
and Betty can function as like a femme fatale. You know, they're they're there. Yeah. They're going to to undercut the hero. The hero is 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 a sad sack. He's a, he's a punching bag. Um, he's he's generally in noir. He's generally like a he's a little bit corrupt, but he's still standing up for what he thinks is right in his own flawed moral sense. But here, the way that this movie is sort of twisted and talking what you were saying about how the enemy is the system, that's classic noir. But the twist here is that it's it's not really about Joe Gillis's standing up for his moral certitudes in the face of it, it un- oncoming authoritarian evil personified in the system and being consistently undercut with the femme fatales around him. It's really more that he doesn't really know what movie he's in. <laughs> he doesn't know the role he's supposed to play. So he doesn't stand up for anyone except himself and serve himself out of pure self-interest. It's, it goes even further than that, I think, in that he he doesn't really give a fig about those surrounding him until it's kind of too late, until the rug's been pulled out from underneath him. He's in too deep, which is still classically noir, but it's with this little cant, you know, a little left eye angle. Yeah, I, I, I think that yeah. all, all this stuff that we're saying is really, really fascinating. Really I love it. I love it. Yeah. When would you just get, like, get in, into the meat of a movie like this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was also wondering, like, why it was called Sunset Boulevard, other than the fact that, obviously, you know, that's where that's where Norma lives. But I also think that, like, the reason is because it's not just Hollywood. It's just, like, this one particular strip. Whenever I think of Sunset, I think of the glamour of Hollywood way more than anything else. And then also the the dark underbelly, because if you ever turn on Sunset, it's I've never particularly enjoyed it. No. Yeah. Yeah, you get you get all of Hollywood in one glance. So having that experience and then and then seeing this movie, which is which has all that, which has all the glamour with all the ugly all thrown into one and and in a lot of ways being trapped, right? Like the cars and the road and being like confined to confined to having to drive everywhere that's a big deal in this movie right if you don't have the cars and you're trapped and this this whole you, you, you may as well have your legs broken right yeah like the car is your is your legs yeah yeah and if you don't have that then sunset boulevard is just going to envelop you in a prison and make you go insane and so that's i i guess that's why i was calling hollywood the villain because i really see it as i don't see any of these people doing anything other than reacting constantly to their surroundings. I, I, I would agree totally. I, I, I pose the question of antagonism um, and villainy because of the sheer amount of antagonism and villainy in this yeah. movie. Um, but you make a really, I mean, I, I think you make the only correct point here that yes, the enemy is the system. Everyone is beholden to the system. Everyone is in the thralls of this horrible monster that bestows both success and failure um, almost at random. Well, but I also wonder, too, I think that it might go a little deeper as well, because it's definitely a statement about the relationship between the writer and the actor. Mm. Right. Like, I, I don't know. I, I feel like it's kind of a trope almost that that writers are kind of hate the actors because they're flashy they their showmen. Well, and they <laughs> butcher their lines, but they're more because they're flashy showmen and they yeah. get all it's like the drummer. The drummer never really gets like in the band. They never really get the adulation that the singer does for sure or the altos don't get the adulation that the sopranos do i mean i mean um, yeah you, you you can tell me the lead singer of fall out boy you can't tell me the drummer <laughs> I, I can't no i can't <laughs> i can't tell you the lead singer either but oh, okay well that, I, that was meant to be a setup but thanks mike but uh but but i mean it's the same sort of thing it's the it, without the drummer you're lost yes even more so the bassist without the bassist you're totally lost no one remembers the bassist unless they're also the singer mm-hmm. 
but so you know the writer they don't really get remembered that much and so there's but there's this weird parasitic relationship that they have with the people who are acting because they both are necessary for them to get any money at all any tidbit of money that falls any crumbs that fall from the table and also they're people and we as people have like this this natural love of stars and the kind of absurdly grotesquely showy the way that Norma is mm-hmm. there's something kind of amazing about it it makes you stop and go wow I don't want to be this person or know this person, but I kind of do. I kind of want to be obsessed with this person. Yeah. And so I, I think I, I think it's kind of about that weird love-hate relationship that a writer has with with an actor and an actor with a writer, because an actor needs a writer to be anything at all, right? Or else you just end up in this flashy, showy life that has no um, no basis, no core to it. Um that's a really good take. What do you think? Oh, I think you hit the nail on the head right there. I, I also think there's another dynamic here, too. Uh, it's weird that a writer, of all things, is chosen as the protagonist for this, because this is all about, like, what, you know, the fallout from silent movies. And, you know, what does Norma say? Like, words, 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 more words. That's all you writers ever do. Um, <laughs> that's all uh, us podcasters ever do, too. Like, yeah. <laughs> like we're all about the talking. We're all about the words. And he is, I think in this case, it's almost like the reverse symbiotic relationship that they have where normally it's the, it's the writer relying on the actor, but now, now she needs a writer. She needs to understand what on earth it takes to actually talk in these movies instead of just have that, that face. It's not enough to be a face anymore. You have to use your mouth. You have to use your words. And, she craves that she wants yeah. that stardom so she that's why i think so she's it, clutching at him literally and it's so hard for him to walk away from it mm-hmm. because it's like an actor needs me more than i need the actor finally yeah dang nice that's good and i think yeah. i think that all kind of wraps together with her uh, eventual meeting with cecil b demille right yeah the director of directors because you have the star. It's, it's almost like making a movie, right? You got the script. You got the star. Who's going to direct it? Who's going to bring the vision together as a whole? And I think it's really telling in, in the movie that there's this foreshadowing of how this is not going to work out because the movie doesn't work out because the director is not on board. The director doesn't like the script and he doesn't want the actor and it falls apart there. And that's when you know we're done here. The director doesn't want it. There's no movie without the director. Just like there isn't a movie without the writer. Just like there's a movie without the star. There's nothing here. We're finished. This is this is a scrap project. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. It almost makes me wonder why Max didn't jump in and try to pull some strings somehow. He did. At the end. <laughs> he did oh, the yeah. best he could do. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Man. All right. Um, so I, I would ask a question then here. Just a fun question. Because I, I was, I, I couldn't help but think of it because this movie, while while feeling timeless, it also feels of its time. Uh, it not dated, but certainly made in the 1950s style of film noir. For instance, there's a lot of narration, a ton of unneeded but very entertaining narration, right? Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking to myself, playing through some of these scenes, you know, what would this movie be like without the narration? It would feel very sparse, but it would actually feel kind of like the movies from the 70s. Stuff that like Vim Vendors did 
or stuff that, uh, you know, any of the, uh, the newer modern, um, like John Cassavetes would do. Like a John Cassavetes movie has usually almost no narration. It's so sparse and far apart. And it, you really have to work hard to understand the motivations of the characters, what's happening underneath the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, almost like reading, if you go from reading like Dickens to Hemingway, <laughs> it, it's, it's a jarring like whiplash. And I was thinking, what would this movie even look like today? Yeah. You know, if, if we were to remake this, I think my first step, and I wondered what you guys would think, what you would want to do, but just to start, my first step would be to, to do something very similar to this and remove all narration, absolutely all of it. Let the scenes play in silence, see what happens. Because I don't know what that would look like. Would you also take make the, the soundtrack a lot more sparse? There's a lot of soundtrack. Yeah. It's really good. And it does give you a lot of hints at the emotions of the characters. And I think it works well in conjunction with the narr- narration. So yeah. something would have to be done, either yeah, less sure. or more. I'm not sure which. I, I would say less. But I mean, you still you still need to have that organs sort of stuff. Of like, course, like I can see like this sparse, beautifully so sort stark. of set, like a lot of black and white colors mm-hmm. and pastels. Yeah, and uh, just like yeah, I can see that. What, what, what do you think, Jesse? What would you change about this if you were to, to put it forth in a modern context? Because I mean, this is a classic. I don't think we need to change the movie, but if we were going to push it forward into the new era, making it more specific? Like, what would you think? I I would think it would turn out to be more of a thriller. Like, I, I would, I think it would be way more at the edge of your seat, scarier, like you never know when Norma's going to be behind a door with a gun ready to kill you, or with a Charlie Chaplin impersonation, which is equally creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very good, though. It was very good. It, it yeah, really it was. was. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah, I think it would end up being more of a thriller. But also, like we we do have the artist, which is a similar plot and not minus the whole craziness part, but it's the same sort of motivations for some characters. And then, and then apparently, apparently they are remaking this, and Glenn Close is supposed to be playing Norma as oh, a musical. Oh, I have I have something to say about that. I th- she's already as a done musical? that. She's no, that's that's already been on Broadway for a long time. Yeah. Oh, it's been it's been yeah. out since like the eighties. And so she's actually played this role multiple times, gone back for like revivals and different oh, performances. Yeah. She's won awards for it. Oh, yeah. And so they're thinking about bringing it back actually as a movie. That would be very cool. Yeah. Yeah. The musical is apparently really good. I've never heard it. I, I was just listening to some songs oh. and it was very moving. And Glenn Close does an amazing job. So I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to that because it's also really neat. I've never I've never seen the musical or anything, but it'd be really cool to see the the musical bent because it seems like the other way to go if you're not going to go thriller is you insert a lot of songs, you make it still emotionally weighty, but like you have enough music to like you know, it's like enough well, enough you, sugar for well, the wormwood. Like, you're kind of like yeah, and you're leaning into the melodrama, right? right. You're leaning into the the soapy aspect. And also, like, I was just thinking, you know, we need to do that. When that movie comes out, we're doing a pod on it. and But it's going to be right after our Fatal Attraction pod. Perfect. You know, <laughs> you know when you texted us that question, I was thinking about it. And I, I kind of want, like, a different way. Like, it, it's interesting. There's a bunch of movies about the period when, um, and, I mean, they're still making them, like, with the artist, about the period when Hollywood went from silent films to talkies. And it does seem like that's a real watershed moment, um, the likes of which never seen since and yeah. you wonder if there will be a, a, a similar thing ever you know there's the switch from black and white to color but you still got people talking you still got the same actors the difference comes more with direction which is a 
which is a quiet sort of change. And we've had massive changes in the way things have been directed over the years, obviously. Um, so I was thinking like, what, what's a, I don't know, what's a sort of analogous thing. And the thing that popped into my mind is like an aging comedian, like Dane Cook <laughs> with, uh, I'm already laughing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but then like you've got a young female writer getting trapped in his, I don't know, like this is what popped in my head. A young female comedian writer gets trapped in his claws. Wow. Um, which would just be like. That would be a very dark movie. Like, no, it would, no, no. I'm going to cast this right now. Yeah. It's Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Oh, perfect. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. There we go. Imagine Sunset Boulevard starring Dane Cook and Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Here we go. It's a dark movie that you're laughing at and hate yourself for the whole time. And hate them. And hate them. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. So it was less about, like, the way it looks and more about, like, the, the subject matter, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, like, where do we find this subject matter applying now? I mean, you could even go like further and be like, well, it's a biopic of Harvey Weinstein. Oh shit. Yeah. No, Man, no, I, no. I'm not I... looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not looking forward to 15 years in the future when we get that. Yep, Ooh, we'll that'll be, uh, it'll be important, but it'll be horrible. Not a dad movie. I'm just calling it right now. Not a dad movie. Yeah. Um, not a dad movie, <laughs> but it. <laughs> It's really hard to remake this movie because Norma is such like she's such a she's a character that can only be shown in one time in history. I don't think you can ever repeat that. Uh, like, I don't think you can ever. Oh, no, I, 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 I don't mean like putting it in a modern setting. I meant simply taking this story and doing it again. That's all I meant. Yeah, but I guess I guess what I'm saying is I, I'm not even sure if it's entirely repeatable. I think Norma's character is so unique. She's so she's so full of herself, and you see that in so many people. But she's also she's also trapped, and she's so dramatic. Like to have that weird combination of, of people literally clutching onto their former life in a way that they can never ever have it again, when they're clearly actually capable of doing it. That's a sort of tragedy I haven't quite seen others others go through. You know, you always have the people who aren't able to do it anymore. And that's tragic, but to be able to act, to be able to beat Charlie Chaplin at will and to still not star in movies because they've, they've gone too small. Yeah. I I don't, I don't know what that exact equivalent is. I mean, so are you saying that Gloria Swanson as Norman Desmond could, that's kind of all you can, you can get is you need that silent film actress and, herself like reflecting this this issue yeah i i think so i would think that that's why this movie hasn't been remade a thousand times and that's why they're doing it as a musical because you can have that melodrama as a musical and everybody would be like oh yeah it's a musical i because it if as soon as you say musical everybody forgives like all the weird things that don't quite make sense but norma doesn't make sense unless you have the silent actress thing play out very cool. I like I like how you're addressing not only the idea of remaking an old thing into a new thing, even though you're keeping the time period the same, but also addressing that the original casting was so historically significant it could be it, it's probably unrepeatable. Yeah, I really like that point. Yeah, I don't I don't think we could ever have it again. Yeah, I mean I'm not I'm not gonna lie. I would love to see another actress in her middle age tackle a role this meaty. And this sort of maniacal and confused and honestly, at times quite lovely. I, I think in the end, I, I have to agree. Gloria Swanson took this role to her grave. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, yeah. And I mean, I kind of feel like this story, like we've seen this story. I mean, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is kind of this same story. It's playing out in slow motion there. It's playing out in slow motion. And also it doesn't end with the, with the actor descending into insanity. Um, He does insane things. He does insane things, but he doesn't become insane. Like you get the sense that he pulls his life together at the end of it. It's kind of the, like we talked about before, it's kind of like we, we get the happy ending. Quentin Tarantino always gives us the happy ending. But it, it's like Jesse's saying, it's, it's not it's not that watershed moment. We don't have those watershed actors anymore who who had that clear break where there was one thing and then that went away. And there wasn't anything that they could do after it. And it was the system that did it. It wasn't like they fell apart. They stopped being good. It was that no one no one wanted it anymore. Yeah, yeah, they, they were... Uh discarded toy like jesse in toy story 2 yeah you know yeah yeah exactly stop yeah. playing with her um so i guess moving that forward into sort of our series as a whole you know we we talked at great length that in our once upon a time in hollywood episode about everything about once upon a time in hollywood <laughs> but um <laughs> a great great length uh, but here that You're welcome yeah <laughs> that movie is is very much a fairy tale it's 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 a very sweet optimistic sincere heartfelt kind of movie and this movie uh, I don't think is any of those. I don't think it fits any of those descriptions. It's a, it's a nightmare. Sh- yeah, it, it's a it's a nightmare. It's a, it's a storm cloud of razors um, yeah. that that launches at you. And it's depiction of Hollywood as glamorous as it can be. I mean, we go to the set of a Cecil, a Cecil B. DeMille movie, you know, the one of the most legendary big actors that people like Michael Bay could only ever hope to compare themselves to. Mm-hmm. And the, the maker of epics. We go all the way from there to what happens when showbiz forgets you and you're lost in an empty, dusty mansion tucked away in Sunset Boulevard. This shows that, like you were saying, Jesse, when you take a ride down there, you see the, the grimy underpinnings on top of which is laid this facade of the bourgeois. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think what I would say, and I want to hear what you think, Jesse, about how this ties into our series is we're always going to be talking about the promise of Hollywood and how it can't deliver on that promise. Yeah. Well, I think that's half the case because Hollywood does deliver for a time. Cause it seems like with both Joe and Norma, like you both hear about their past as being great. Like Joe was on the top of his writing game. Now he's not, now he's in a slump and he just can't deliver anymore. And Norma, she was the biggest movie actress and now she can't anymore. And Max used to be the, best up-and-coming director and he made those movies and now he's not like it did deliver they do have that mansion they do have that pool they are rich it just maybe maybe it's impossible for it to deliver everything that they ever desired which is maybe a human i'm not even sure what what it is they desire anymore it's just the perpetual being immortality immortality yeah Mm. a star is always a star you can't leave a star that's what makes a star a star yeah, like you're always going to be that. And yeah, I, I think they're all craving the immortality and not quite getting it. But yeah, Hollywood does deliver. It delivers something. It's just not what they always wanted. It kind of reminds me of that Stephen King novel, Needful Things, that the, the shop that always gives you exactly what you want, but it never does anything for you. They also did that Rick and Morty episode where Satan oh, yeah. is like yes, owning the yes. shop. And that's oh exactly what Needful Things is. Yeah. It's like he gives you the curse <laughs> thing. <laughs> He's like, well, let me guess. You're going to give me that guitar, but it's like going to shred my fingers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what, what do you think this says about Hollywood, Mike? 
I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's that. I, I think it's, I, I do think it's talking about how it sucks you dry. <laughs> um, it promises everything that you could ever dream and it, everything that you could ever dream is unattainable. It's saying a lot about the parasitic, I, I think the parasitic relationship of all of the different roles in Hollywood, how everyone's just using each other. Like what Joe does in the end, I, that's really important. And we didn't really talk about how he, uh, he basically like he gets Betty to cheat on her fiance with him. And then that same night, he basically like he makes her come because Norma's talked to her basically says like, yeah, I'm, I, I'm a gigolo and uh, drives her away. Right. But yes. then like, and so you, I, I don't know for me, he, I was he cheapens like, her and, and himself at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And Norma. Yeah. He cheapens it all. But it, I think that that's him like getting away and getting out of it because he's finally realized Norma is totally manipulating him. There's nothing good for him in this relationship at all. Even though like he says that to, to Betty and says that it is a good relationship and something that he's getting something out of. He's not really, he, it's, he doesn't really care about the cushiness. What he realizes is that it's all fake. Betty's also fake. And I need to leave and go back to Ohio and write for that crappy newspaper because it was real. Mm. Um, and I think that that's, that's kind of like what the whole almost point of this movie made by Billy Wilder, who made uh, just everything yeah. um, is, is that Hollywood is fake. Everything here is nothing. Um, everyone here is, is absolutely fake. And the only way to get out is to get shot twice Three times. Three times. Yeah. Three times. And fall into the pool of dreamland. And you, and you know what they did? They rewarded him. <laughs> they rewarded him. They held like, up yeah, a mirror right. and they loved it. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, this is, this is real. I mean, That's what I, think. I, I think there's something to that. But, like, also comparing it to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like, yeah, everything's fake. And, and there's all those flashy lights and stuff. But it's just so cool. And now reflecting over the movie, I think Betty also sees that part of Hollywood, the cool part, right? Like when they're walking down the streets and she just loves the set because it looks really cool. Yeah. And also she like, said it's her favorite street. Yeah. yeah it's her favorite street. Yeah, and that's right. She grew up on it. She played in it. Honestly, it is pretty cool. Like she's right about that. There is something magical about that part of Hollywood. Um, and also like, She's also a person who has gotten her nose done, but I she's accepted it, but she hasn't ever used it to be the actress, right? So she's one of those people who can appreciate Hollywood from behind the camera, not in front of it. She looks around and kind of likes it and thinks it's really neat and thinks it's cool. It's something she wants to be a part of. It still has that magic. I just want to use the the Tarantino quote again. It's just so much fun, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I oh, see. I I had a much more cynical take though on that. Like, I I do think I think you're seeing. I think Quentin Tarantino looks at that stuff and he's like, "Oh yeah, it's cool. It is so cool, Jan. All yeah. this stuff is cool." And he's like, a, he's still the little kid, and she is still kind of that little kid, except like she hasn't written multiple blockbusters. She's just starting out, and she sees it's cool. But I think that this movie is saying like, no, she's going to get jaded the same way that Joe is for sure. Um, she's going to end up as fake as he is. And and it's all going to collapse because it all is built on on fakeness. I think I think Billy Wilder is a lot more cynical than Quentin Tarantino. There's an there's an inherent vice yeah. that that Billy Wilder sees that 
Tarantino is just not addressing, right? That doesn't well, really seem to be on on his plate. He he shows the downfall, but yeah. but that movie is so achingly sincere in that redemptive arc. Yeah, well, he does address it. He says, "Yeah, it is fake, and it's still cool." Right. Yeah. But he doesn't. What I'm. What I mean by. What I mean by he doesn't address it is I mean that he doesn't. He he dismisses it offhand. He, he dismisses the 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 he, cynicism. He says. He says, he says no. fine. Whatever. Okay. Like you can be like a sad it. person. Yeah. But their dreams are made here. You could live next door to a uh, Roman Polanski. And the like, way. And the only way that he could do that that had any. By the way, I just want to remind you. Any way that rang true was by making a fairy tale. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. That's that's very true. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, I I disagree with you in the same way that Jesse maybe does, that not all of our movies are going to end with just total cynicism about Hollywood because one of them already hasn't. Isn't that what you asked? Well, I just said, what do you think it says about oh, okay. Hollywood? Oh, okay. Sorry, Jesse, go ahead. I mean, Mike just answered for me, so I'm good. <laughs> okay, no, I, 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 I think that this one is just showing um, that added layer of Hollywood that was not addressed in the, the last movie. Um, okay. the, the seedy, gritty, dreams dying here way. Because yeah. it flirts with it, like we're talking about, but it doesn't really go into it. Because that's just not the story yeah. it's telling. Yeah. Um, and this one is. It's talking about that. Um, and that's just, I think it's bringing out two sides of Hollywood that I'm very interested in exploring in our in our next few selections. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, guys, I think we should probably wrap it up. As, as we wanted this to be a much longer episode, but, you know, there was the intervening hour of audio mishaps that will <laughs> go us, down. This was the longest episode ever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but not I'm, for you. We saved you this time. I'm almost half tempted to just include like the six recordings that we have that are like 30 seconds long of each of us just like screaming and wondering why this wasn't working. Uh, I won't do it. I promise. Things were on fire. Yeah. Jesse, Jesse, he tattooed his own face. I don't know why, <laughs> but he just did it. He was so rage filled. It says eat me. It's weird. <laughs> Right uh, under his left eye. I don't know. Do I've we, been does tra- he want to see his eye? I mean, how else do you train to be a tattoo artist in COVID except to do it on yourself? You could Perfect. be like, uh, um, what's his name? A Pete Davidson in King of Staten Island and like tattoo a kid. <laughs> that was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so we wrap up always with uh, with our last question. Uh, I'm going to bundle them all up and just serve them each to you in an individual packet. Jesse, if you want to go first, is this a dad movie? Would you show this to your kids? And if you do, when would you? Uh, yeah, this is a dad movie. It's just an instant classic. There's a lot. This is also a good introduction to like, to like crazy Hollywood to mental illness without it. Like, I know there's murder at the end, but the murder is impactful, but still pretty tame. Yeah, I I would say this is this is a good intro to, to that and to the idea of Hollywood. It's, it's, it's a very good intro to Hollywood. Honestly, it's pretty honest about it. And then like, what I showed to my kids, well, you know, my daughter, she woke up and she watched a lot of it with me before the murder scene happened. I was like, all right, now time to go to bed because I don't want you to see that because she's only four. <laughs> <laughs> but like she, right. she enjoyed it. It was really strange. She hates movies, but she really liked this one for some reason. Uh, it really grabbed her. It's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I don't even know what to think about that other than to say like, yeah, I'm definitely going to show this to my kids sometime probably i would say like teenage years not because like i don't think they could handle it but because there's too much to go going on like just remembering some of these scenes 
when I was younger, I, I thought they were just crazy bonkers. And I was like eight and I just, I couldn't make sense of any of it. It was impactful because I saw it, but not because I understood anything. So I would want my kids, I would, I want to sit down and talk about this with them. Yeah. How about you, Mike? I'm going to say, I don't think this is a dad movie. I think this is a masterpiece and I want my kids to see it, but I don't think it's a dad movie. And I'm not exactly sure I can define why I say that, but it's not something that I feel like this in the first place. It doesn't define me. And it's something it's almost too much of a masterpiece to be relegated into a category. Almost. It's just like, I, I, I don't know. It's like, no, this is a great movie that you have to see when you're ready for it. It's like saying, I don't know, is Don Quixote a dad book? No, no, that's not a dad book. That's a great book. You can dislike it. People do. But everyone acknowledges like, no, this is a defining book. I don't know. It, it's it's something that I want them to see, but I don't think that, it, I don't know. It's it's not something that I'm like, oh yeah, this is this is a movie that I show my kids. Huh. So... I, I, so if, if I'm hearing yeah. you correctly, it's almost like you're saying this movie is for people that like movies, not necessarily for a family to gather around and watch. Is that more the feeling I'm getting from you? Yeah, it's partly that. I mean, like people could gather around and, and watch it, too. But I don't know. I I guess it's I guess it's more just that. Like, I, I, I feel like saying like, oh, this is a dad movie just uh, takes away from it. In a way, um, and maybe maybe that maybe that's that's wrong. That you know that's my personal definition of of a dad movie. Well, that, that is what um, we're working off of here. Yeah, I know, I know. We're still we're still trying to understand it. Um, Jess, Jesse figured it out like episode two, <laughs> and Mike and I are still like wandering around in this forest of definitions. Yeah. Well, I kind of feel like it's something that is like, oh no, this is something. I mean, like this has stuff that that I'm like, oh yeah, it's very dad e. Like it's all about old Hollywood. It's historical. It's all this stuff. But it's just this tour de force of acting and just like such a, a uh, it's so much that putting it into a category. I mean, I, I feel like Billy Wilder would be happy to hear me say that putting it into any category discredits the movie in, in my sort of mental, emotional state right now. Well, we're what all, about you, Vito? We're all on journeys with it. Uh, <laughs> and it's actually, it, it's fun that it causes a stir. Uh, it's when, you know. I don't know how many people have said that's when you know you made great art, right? Um, you cause <laughs> that that kind of inner turmoil yeah. a little bit. Uh, for me, uh, I hear what you're saying about discrediting it by by slapping a label on it. But guess what? This is the Oprah's Book Club of of podcasts. <laughs> I'm slapping this sticker as hard as I can. We got a two thirds majority here, man. I'm saying, bam, <laughs> this is a dad movie. And you know what? This does not take away, in my view, from the varnish of this movie. We are another oh. accolade that we are, we are stacking on this movie's uh, mm. warehouse of accolades. <laughs> yeah. Probably the highest one, to be quite honest. But, yeah. you, know, you know, It finally got our approval, guys. No, um, <laughs> I, I just, I want to add more praise to this because I, I want to echo everything that you said, really everything you said with the exception of it not being a dad movie. Yeah. And I don't even want to fight you on that at all. Um, <laughs> you're right about everything that you said. Just the only thing is I just feel a little bit differently about it. Yeah. This is for sure a dad movie. I'm very, I also, Jesse, uh, my daughter came in. Uh, actually, I turned it on and we watched it from the beginning. And I was, I remember the beginning and I knew that we were going to see the body floating in the pool and stuff. But I thought back to when I was a kid and all the Westerns that I watched, people getting shot and you just say, oh, he got shot. 
And it's only as you get older, like when we're watching The Lion King and stuff. I mean, we're talking about this. You, yeah. know, you see it, and you're like, oh, Mufasa's dead. Okay. And he's dead. And you move on. And so my daughter saw, you know, um, Joe floating in the pool. She says, he's dead. I said, that's right. He is dead. And then the next scene came. And then she said, he's not dead. I said, that's before. She goes, oh. <laughs> and I saw, something, I saw something happen in that moment. I think I saw it. Learning. I I think I saw it. It was just like, oh, maybe, maybe everything on that screen doesn't happen sequentially. Maybe that's what happened. I don't know. But she was also wrapped in the movie. She, she really watched it a lot. Like she, she loved, I think it maybe it's, it's because of that silent film thing you were talking about earlier, Jesse, is that Gloria Swanson is so used to acting with only her face and conveying emotions so Mm -hmm. fundamentally, so elementally that when she makes a face, you know what's happening. So she'd say, oh, she's mad. I go, that's right. She's very mad. She goes, why is she mad? I said, because he doesn't love her. She goes, oh. And then today she was asking my wife uh, in the other room. She goes, why didn't he love her? And there's this, like this thing that happened where she started to ask questions about what she saw and wonder why about it. So we watched about an hour and then she and then she had to go and take a bath and all this stuff. So she didn't see the ending at all. Mm-hmm. Um but I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that this movie more than most movies. It wasn't just like watching Spider-Man where she got the iconography so fast and she understood the 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 action that was happening and was like, oh, okay, that's Spider-Man. That's all she can say is that's Spider-Man. She's actually asking, why did that thing in that movie happen? Yeah, and that's cool. I thought that was really interesting. That's really so cool. in the end, I think it's a dad movie. I want to show it to her. I like this. I love this movie a lot. I would say late around 10 i would probably say i'd probably put it around 10 because it's a fairly tame film but it's also very deep and very strange and yeah i i would think that maybe around then she'd probably get a good amount out of it and i think that could only grow as time went by okay okay after hearing you talk i think i think i would go back on the teenage thing and and say around 10 too because like you're right the emotions are really just that obvious on screen that any 10 year old can pick that up and then want to ask why because frankly every adult in the room is also asking why it's cool that you could have a 10 year old and an adult sit around watch a movie and ask the same exact question yeah yes to understand the stakes to understand the characters and still have questions deep questions not just like this movie is incomprehensible but actually what is this about what is happening yeah, I, I think that's the power of this movie. That's cool. Yeah. Well, great. Uh, any any closing thoughts, Mike? I got nothing. Jesse? Uh, my grandfather energy is out. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would agree. I'm going to retire to my uh, armchair. I got some carpet slippers. I have a cognac. I think I'm going to watch the 14 fifths of McCluskey. McCluskey. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now, from all of us at Not Your Father's Movies, thank you for listening. Good night. Good night. Good night.
Hey everyone, this is Mike from Not Your Father's Movies. Thank you so much for listening. If you've got any questions on tonight's episode, thoughts on movies that should or should not be in the dad canon, and most importantly, things Vito got wrong, we'd literally love to hear from you. Shoot us an email with anything you got at notyourfathersmovies at gmails.com. That's notyourfathersmovies at gmail.com. And if that's not enough for you and you want more ways to listen to us, reach us, share us, and support us, Check out our website at nyfm.podbean.com. That's nyfm.podbean.com. Shout out to Max Agros for our sick theme music. Thank you, Max, and thank you all again for listening to us. Have a great night.